This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention, please. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Sig Hecker, and with Professor Scott Sagan, uh, the co-director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, as we call CSAC, uh, at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies here at Stanford University. Uh, on behalf of CSAC, I welcome you to the annual Drell Lecture, uh, where we welcome uh, today Dr. Stephen Coonan. I'm pleased to offer a special welcome to Stanford uh, graduates and great friends of the university, Albert and Cicely Whelan, who have generously uh, endowed that lecture, uh, and to Sid Drell, uh, in whose honor the lecture is given, and welcome also Harriet uh, Drell. CSAC is a research center devoted to producing policy-relevant research, influencing public policy, and training the next generation of specialists in international security. Its roots go back more than 30 years when a few of our faculty convinced the university to dedicate resources and faculty to teach and engage students in pressing issues of international security. And in fact, one of those dedicated faculty members who convinced the university is Dr. Sid Drell. Bud and Cicely Whelan established the Drell Lecture in 1994 to address current and critical national and international security issues that have important scientific and technical dimensions. It was named in honor of Professor Drell, the founding co-director of CSAC and former deputy director of the Stanford Linear Accelerator, or SLAC, upon his retirement. But Whelan and Sid Drell, both physicists, have made outstanding contributions to national security over many years by applying their great knowledge and wise counsel to vitally important problems facing the nation and the world. CSAC is privileged to have them as models of how scholarship should inform the development of policies and as partners uh, in the work that CSAC conducts. Our, speakers this our speaker this afternoon is also very much in the tradition of using the finest scholarship to address some of the greatest challenges that the world confronts. We're fortunate to have Dr. Stephen Coonan at Stanford to speak on energy, environment, security. Can we have it all? Dr. Coonan wears many hats. He's an academic theoretical physicist who's been on the faculty at California Institute of Technology since 1975. He's also served in academic leadership positions including as Caltech provost from 1995 to 2004. And now he's a leader in industry, serving as chief scientist of BP since 2004. At BP, Dr. Kunin is responsible for the company's long-range technology plans and activities, especially those that are beyond petroleum. He has purview over BP's major university research programs around the world and provides technical advice to BP executives. Dr. Coonan holds a BS in physics from Caltech and a PhD in theoretical physics from MIT. He shares that institution's affiliation with Drs. Whelan and Drell. 
His scientific accomplishments have been recognized with awards and numerous, from numerous organizations. He has served on a number of advisory boards, including those serving the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, and the Department of Energy and its national laboratories. He was also a member of JSON, which is an academic group that advises our government on scientific issues, uh, including those of national security. That's also an organization of which Professor Drell is one of the founding members. Dr. Kunin will take the podium in just a moment, but first let me ask you to make sure that your cell phones are off. I'd also like to ask you to hold your questions until the end of the talk when we'll conduct the question and answer session. So now I'd like you to join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen E. Kunin to Stanford. Well, thank you, Sig. There are multiple reasons why it's a particular personal pleasure for me to be giving a drill lecture. I've known Bud and Cicely Whelan for some 15 years through Bud's service as a Caltech tr trustee. And Sid Drell has been my friend, colleague, and mentor for more than 20 years. And beyond our common MIT heritage, which has already been mentioned, the three of us share a passion and a belief in the application of a physicist's tools and sensibilities to important societal matters. My subject today is the nexus among energy, security, and the environment. Providing secure and sustainable energy to meet the world's growing demand is one of the most difficult tasks that society is facing for the next several decades. As energy issues are invariably a complex tangle of technical, economic, and geopolitical considerations, my topic is more than suitable for a drill lecture. My approach will be that of a physicist, following in the tradition of previous drill lecturers whom I know and admire. I'll be factual, quantitative, and analytic, trying to clearly distinguish what's known and the uncertainties from my own opinions and judgments, which, by the way, are not necessarily those of BPs. My time frame will be no more than about 30 or 40 years, since that's about as far as you can project reasonably. And it's also most important to get the right level of resolution in talking about energy, identifying general principles and trends, and understanding which details matter and which ones don't. I've got a three-part plan for the next 40 minutes. I'll start with the facts, something that's not always done in talking about energy, and sketch the status and plausible projections of important dimensions of energy. I'll then talk about what could be done to address the challenges that we face. And I'll close with some thoughts on the necessity of broadening the energy discussion to other great problems that the world is facing. So first to the facts, and there are many things to understand about energy, but given the limited time, I think there are four broad statements that will suffice. The first statement is that energy use will grow strongly during the next several decades. That fact is illustrated by this chart, 
which shows for various countries 24-year trajectories of the annual per capita energy use against the annual GDP per capita. The US in the upper right corner is an outlier. It has a high but slowly growing energy use per capita and a high GDP. There's another group of countries in the middle right of the chart in the developed world, that's the EU and Japan, whose energy per person is about half that of the US, but with a per capita GDP that's only about two-thirds that of the US. And then starting in the lower left corner and extending upward, there's a broad swath of countries in the developing world, China, India, Brazil, Malaysia, Mexico, whose energy use per capita increases steadily and universally as their economies grow. Two general conclusions emerge when you look at these data. First, nobody uses less energy as they get richer. And second, because there are about a billion people in the developed world, another two and a half billion people in the developing world, and another two and a half billion people who are not even on this chart, one can expect demand growth as the economic conditions around the world improve, as we hope that they will. Moreover, that economically driven demand growth is enhanced by a population growth expected to go from the present six and a half billion people to a broad peak at about nine billion people around the middle of this century. Most of that growth will be in Africa and Asia so that Europe and North America will contain smaller and relatively older fractions of the world's people by mid-century. So economic improvements and growing population will lead, in fact, are already leading to a very strong growth in energy demand. Business as usual projections show energy demand increasing by about 60% to 2030 and doubling by the middle of this century. About three quarters of that growth will be in the developing world. So that was the first statement, strong growth in demand. The second statement is that today and in the foreseeable future, under plausible projections of historic trends, the great majority of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. This chart shows the historic and business as usual projected sources of the world's energy. The middle bar for 2010 shows that today, coal, oil, and gas provide about 80% of the primary energy. You can see that even though renewables, that tiny pink bar at the top of the columns, are expected to grow strongly, 6.5% annual growth rate, by 2030 they'll still account for a very small fraction of the world's energy. And so for the next many decades, most of our energy seems destined to come from fossil fuels because of their availability, low cost, and ease of use. That point of availability warrants a little bit of elaboration. While fossil fuels are a finite resource, we're not going to run out of them anytime soon, as shown in this chart. If you look at the left bar, at current consumption rates, there are 40 years of conventional oil, and in the middle bar, 60 years of conventional gas, known to be economically recoverable. With a further equal amount of each plausibly yet to be identified. 
and there are at least 150 years worth of coal at current consumption rates, with plausibly much more. Nobody has ever gone exploring for coal. Now one aspect of fossil fuels that you will hear much about is the peaking of oil production. People write whole books about it and the disruptions that that peaking will entail. Oil is distinguished among the fossil fuels in that it is currently the only fuel that powers transportation, largely because of its high energy density. Now if you've been around a while, this is not the first time that you will have heard people say that we're going to run out of oil. One day they'll be correct. But right now the world plausibly has four and a half trillion barrels of oil that are recoverable at costs economic compared to today's $90 a barrel. Actually today I think it's about 85. That four and a half trillion barrels is about four times the total consumption expected over the next 25 years. It's true that most of that oil will be more difficult to produce and of lower quality. However, it doesn't look to me like we're going to run out of hydrocarbons anytime soon. There are plenty of hydrocarbons in the ground. Rather, as one of my senior BP colleagues says, oil production is determined not so much about what happens below the ground as what happens above the ground. The technology, the economics, the demand, and the politics, of course. The third statement is that fossil fuels are maldistributed around the world and that there is a dislocation between where the fluid hydrocarbons are and where the demand centers are. You can see that from this chart, which lumps together the three largest energy consuming regions, North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific. The left-hand bar shows that those three regions consume 78% of the oil produced every day, but then the bar just to the right of that shows that they have only 10% of the conventional reserves. The situation for gas is a bit more evenly matched. 61% of the consumption in these big regions, but only 32% of the reserves. While the right-hand two bars show that for coal, there is a fair alignment between consumption and reserves. Of course, not shown on this chart are the so-called unconventional resources, heavy oil, tar sands, tight gas, and so on all of which can make a material contribution to supply, although it increased cost, difficulty, and possibly emissions. Another trend relevant to energy security is the increasing concentration of oil reserves in the hands of the national oil companies. So the NOx like Saudi Aramco or Petrobras. Those are in contrast with the international oil companies, the IOCs like BP, Shell, and Exxon. The IOCs have access to only some 10% of the conventional reserves, yet currently account for 35% of the world's production. And in general, the publicly owned and publicly scrutinized IOCs are more efficient and more adept than the NOx, whose strategies may have drivers beyond economics. This dislocation induces a growing energy trade as shown in this chart, with the exports shown above the line and the imports shown below the line. You can see that the world's energy security in oil, and to some extent in gas, 
depends upon stable investment and production in distant lands with sometimes unstable societies and a stable trade system to move those hydrocarbons around efficiently. But as the large consuming nations like China, the US, and India become concerned about energy security, they will increasingly turn to coal and unconventional reserves. The fourth and final point about energy is that the conventional use of fossil fuels adds greenhouse gases to the atmosphere as shown in this chart. About 60% of the anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions come from energy activities, of which 40% each arise from power and heat, and 20% comes from transportation. That's a disconnect, actually, for most people who haven't thought about it. Automobiles and oil are the most visible and tangible energy aspects in everyday life but they account for 20% of the emissions only. Power and heat are twice as large each. You can see from this chart that agriculture and deforestation also make substantial contributions not related to energy. The greenhouse gases have accumulated in the atmosphere to the point where they are very likely contributing to the climate change that we're observing and will very likely influence the climate even more strongly as they accumulate further in the coming decades. While the detailed impacts of future anthropogenic climate change aren't known, we do know broadly that they entail disruptions and costs that could range from merely inconvenient to catastrophic. The much discussed increase in global temperature, whatever it turns out to be, is not particularly reflective of the possible consequences which include increased desertification and precipitation, shifts in vegetation and fauna, sea level rise, severe storms. These are not things that we want to happen. Now coming back to the science for a moment, the cumulative nature of the greenhouse gas problem is particularly insidious, although little appreciated among the general public. If we have a look at this chart, on the left-hand graph, is shown the historic and projected greenhouse gas emissions through the end of this century. The black line before 2004 shows the historic data and the business as usual projection for the rest of the century is at a one and a half compounded annual growth rate. By the way, this chart was prepared a few years ago. The more recent annual growth rate in emissions is closer to 3%. Because about half the CO2 emitted every year stays in the atmosphere, with a lifetime of more than a thousand years, the atmosphere effectively accumulates the emissions that we put up every year. So that the concentration, which is shown in this right-hand graph, rises at just about the same rate. In this case, for these graphs, one and a half percent a year. Under business as usual, the concentration le reaches levels deemed to be dangerous no later than mid-century. Now the problem caused by this accumulation is that if you make a modest reduction in emissions, for example, can we, we can turn the black curve into the green curve on the left-hand panel, that only delays but doesn't prevent crossing of levels that could be dangerous. 
And so we really need to make drastic reductions in emissions if we're going to avoid crossing concentration levels that we should not be crossing. For example, if you look on the left-hand graph in this chart, that shows the green lines show what an emissions trajectory would have to look like if we wanted to stabilize concentrations at 550 parts per million, twice the pre-industrial value. Notice that if you compare the green solid and green dash curves, there's a trade-off between stabilizing emissions now or allowing them to grow for a while at the expense of stronger cutbacks later on. The red and blue sets of trajectories show what stabilization at 500 or 450 parts per million would have to uh, look like. And it is these lower concentrations that an increasing number of scientists is talking about as being thresholds beyond which we would exert dangerous influence on the climate system. These simple considerations also show that emissions by the end of this century must be reduced by about a factor of two relative to their current values if we have any hope of stabilization. That's in the face of an anticipated doubling of energy demand by the middle of this century. And so we have to make our energy system four times less carbon intensive than it is right now. Beyond these global emissions challenges, one finds difficulties in the question of who is emitting and how much. This chart shows CO2 emissions per capita against GDP per capita. And the situation looks very much the same as the energy trajectories I showed you a bit ago. Large but slowly growing emissions in the developed world and smaller but rapidly growing emissions from the developing world. Interesting outliers on this chart relative to the energy picture are France, since some 80% of French electricity comes from nuclear power, and Brazil, where a large portion of its electricity comes from hydroelectric power, and carbon-neutral biofuels power a good fraction of the transport. Now, since total and not per capita emissions from the developed and developing worlds are just about equal at this time, there are three sobering implications of this data. Oh, okay. The first is that in this century, emissions from the developing world will be larger than those from the developed world. The second is that with current trends, every 10% reduction that the developed world can make in its emissions, which is not something it has yet managed to do, is offset by less than four years of growth in the developing world. And then finally, if the per capita emissions of either China or India were to grow to be equal to those of Japan, which is one of the lowest emitting of the developed countries, global emissions would increase by 40%, whereas to stabilize greenhouse gases, we have to cut by 50%. Those are the facts. Oh, let me uh, just go up to one. To close off this discussion of energy trends, I show you the world CO2 emissions, which are growing rapidly on the left-hand side, even as its energy supply decarbonizes slightly, as shown on the right-hand side. 
You'll notice that the world carbon intensity shown by that red graph on the right-hand side has actually started to come back up a little bit, and that is the resurgence of coal for the reasons that I told you about before. But it's also disturbing if you look at the curves on the left that the countries that have signed up through the Kyoto Protocol to reduce their emissions have actually increased their emissions in the past decade. The takeaway from that whirlwind tour of the energy scene is that the world faces two separate energy problems, security and emissions. Addressing either or ideally both of them requires major changes in the ways that we produce and use energy. To have an impact on the scale required by these problems, the changes have to be technically feasible, material, cost-effective, and politically acceptable. But even with that stringent set of criteria, there are useful responses. Before going into the specifics, I think it's important to enumerate some of the structural features that distinguish energy from many of the other problems facing society. The first feature is the issue of scale. Energy has a large and costly infrastructure. A single power plant or offshore oil field can be a multi-billion dollar investment. There are large amounts of material involved, gigatons per year of coal or oil, and large numbers of units, vehicles, for example. This scale requires large amounts of capital and or the ability to leverage existing infrastructure. And so for that reason, the existing energy, uh, energy industries, which are used to dealing with this scale and have the capital, must almost certainly be part of any changes. The second feature about energy is its ubiquity. The energy that enables heat, light, and mobility as we go about our daily lives we hardly give it a thought. Yet that very ubiquity generates direct interests from many different players, consumers, producers, governments, NGOs. And as the interests of all of those folks are not always aligned, energy technologies change slowly. The third feature about energy is one of time scales. The lifetimes of large equipment which extend to a century for buildings, 50 years for power plants, 20 years for vehicles, make it difficult to affect rapid changes. The need for interoperability also inhibits change. For example, BP cannot unilaterally change the kind of fuel it sells because it has to work with most of the vehicles that are out there already. And consider that while the carbon problem has decadal rise time scales, Millennium storage time scales. The political time scale is a few years. The business time scale is a quarter. And the news cycle is a day, or maybe even less now. Society is not very well equipped to deal with problems of this kind of duration. The fourth feature of energy is incumbency. From a consumer point of view, there are already perfectly fine technologies for heat, light, and power. Any new technologies introduced which will not provide qualitatively new services must compete on cost and against, and against existing interests. 
The levers available to make changes in the energy system are technology developments and policy. The policy types, of which I expect there are more than a few in the audience, will say that the development and deployment of technologies is policy dependent, and all that one need do is set the right policies. But we technical types know that there are powerful physical constraints that energy, any technology has to respect. You know, you won't repeal the second law of thermodynamics by taxing entropy. Moreover, one can, and indeed I think must, make plausible judgments about technology evolution on a several decade scale. And so let me consider energy technologies first, and then I'll turn to policy. The commonly invoked no silver bullet approach to energy technologies is, to my mind, exactly the wrong way to be thinking. The world has limited resources, whether it's financial, intellectual, or tolerance for change, and limited time in which to address the dual challenges of security and emissions. So we must assess technologies against their ability to scale, their economics, and their likely technical evolution. The deployment of ineffective feel-good technologies is doubly bad, in my opinion in that it both creates the illusion of doing something and also diverts resources from effective measures. So let's start with transport technologies. The full electrification of the automobile drivetrain may eventually happen, the limitation right now being electrical storage technologies. But for the next few decades, liquid hydrocarbons are what matter because of their high energy density. 50 times better than the best battery that we can make right now. So it's useful to consider a two-dimensional plot in which one axis, the vertical axis, is security of supply considerations. You can read it roughly as oil price. And the other axis is carbon dioxide emissions. You can read it roughly as a carbon price. Technologies can then be plotted the size of each circle giving some indication of materiality. On the supply side, which is those darker circles, absent concerns about climate change, namely on the left-hand side of the plot, there are a host of material and cost-effective options that address security of supply by diversifying away from conventional crude. These involve more difficult hydrocarbons, either because of access or quality heavy and shale oils, tar sands, converting coal and natural gas into liquids. Most of these technologies will entail emissions at least as large as those of conventional crude, although the excess could be minimized by capturing and storing the CO2 emissions that result from the processing. If you look in the upper right where we would like to be, technologies that address both emissions and security, the only supply-side option up there is advanced biofuels. Carbon-free hydrogen for transport is shown provocatively as a little circle in the extreme upper right. We can talk more about that in the questions if you like. Conventional biofuels production right now, for example, ethanol from corn here in the U.S., has been piggybacked on food agriculture. As such, it has difficulty scaling to materiality, and has limited greenhouse gas benefits. But advances in biology are opening up possibilities for doing much better. 
dedicated energy crops grown sustainably, providing lignocellulose that's processed into fuel molecules that are much better than ethanol. There is great potential here, and as you may know, BP recently established, in partnership with the University of California at Berkeley and the University of Illinois, an energy biosciences institute to accelerate the development of advanced biofuels technology. Demand-side transportation options, shown in the lighter circles, can play an important role. Hybridization or lightweighting of vehicles or both can make a difference, and there are other changes in engine technologies that could be deployed. Plug-in hybrids, to me, seem an excellent idea on the horizon. A 40-mile electric range, if we could get to that, would cover 70% of the trips in the U.S. All of these technologies exist or are within reach, and it is, in my mind, really a question of whether the political will is there and whether the economic forces can be arranged to accelerate deployment. When one views power technologies in the same dimensions, absent emissions concerns, coal is by far the favorite option. China is deploying one coal plant a week or actually a little bit more rapidly than that. It's available, it's where the demand centers are, it's easy to use, and it is inexpensive. However, coal is the most emissions-laden of the fossil fuels. Natural gas, as shown in the middle of the charts, is better. It emits only about half the CO2 per unit energy. However, there are security of supply concerns associated with natural gas. Hydroelectric power is effective, but the world's capacity for producing that is nearly exhausted. Fortunately, there are three material options in the upper right quadrant. Wind, nuclear power, and hydrogen power, and I want to remark briefly on each of them. Wind power is quite a mature technology. It's competitive with fossil fuels at good sites, onshore. It's being deployed rapidly around the world, and you might be interested to know it's approaching just about 1% of total electricity generated in the U.S. Cautions, though, are the availability of good sites and their distance from the demand centers, the intermittency of wind, and the public acceptance of wind farms. To my mind, it's plausible that wind could grow in the next few decades to 15 to 20% of U.S. electricity produced, but larger fractions seem unlikely to me. Fission currently supplies about 16% of the world's electricity, 20% in the U.S. and U.K., but has not grown materially in the past two decades. It's a proven technology that produces material amounts of emissions-free power at competitive economics. So if the world is going to address CO2 emissions seriously, nuclear will almost certainly be a part of the picture. But there are major drawbacks, concerns about safety, the management of waste, and the potential to accelerate the proliferation of weapons-relevant expertise, if not weapons-relevant material. However, most of those issues seem to me social and organizational, rather than technical. I think serious renewed attention to those matters on both national and international scales should significantly reduce concerns. I might also note that while fission now is used exclusively for power, newer and safer high-temperature gas-cooled designs 
which are on the verge of being demonstrated at scale, offer interesting possibilities for providing heat to extract and process hydrocarbons for transport. The last of the big circles up there is hydrogen power, which is BP's term for carbon capture and storage. Fossil fuels here are burned so that the hydrogen is produced to generate electricity, and carbon dioxide is captured and stored underground, where one can expect that it will remain for many millennia. Remember, we have to keep it locked up for at least a thousand years. Hydrogen power is more than a notion, as all of the above ground elements have been demonstrated but not yet integrated at scale. The integrity of below ground storage is plausible but not yet demonstrated. And the fully mature technology is expected to have costs comparable to nuclear power. The set of hydrogen power demonstration projects proposed by BP and other companies will not only help refine the technology, but will also define the social and legal contexts in which hydrogen power would be deployed. Monitoring criteria, liability, and public acceptance of CO2 storage are all crucial issues to be working on. To my mind, it is really a shame that the US government canceled, I think last week, its major carbon capture and storage demonstration project. Because that technology, together with nuclear and wind, is one of the few material supply-side options for power. Let me say a few words about conservation and efficiency. Improving energy efficiency is a commonly invoked approach to reducing energy use and therefore addressing both emissions and security concerns. For example, about half of the world's energy is consumed in buildings for heat and light and ventilation. And there are already many technologies to enable that energy to be used significantly more efficiently. Yet those technologies are not being deployed aggressively, the barriers being economic and social. Urban energy systems are another potential big win. Today, half of the world's people live in big cities, and by 2030, 70% of the world's people will be living in big cities. Building cities with careful attention to building design, the integration of residential, commercial, and industrial spaces, and the transport systems for people, goods, and information could, in principle, significantly reduce energy use. However, it's important to realize that efficiency and conservation are not the same thing. And indeed, improvements in efficiency can even lead to increased energy consumption. For example, if gasoline prices remain constant, improving the mileage of an automobile could actually result in more miles driven, not less. And if you improve the operating costs of a refrigerator too much, households will start to have two or even three of them, thereby offsetting some of the gains in efficiency. When I lived in Pasadena for many years, I think I had three refrigerators in the house. In my opinion, the only sure way to induce conservation as opposed to efficiency is either to regulate its use or to raise its price. Both of those, or either of those, are difficult acts for governments to pull off and still remain in power. That's a good segue into a brief discussion of energy policies. 
The desiderata here are rationality, effectiveness, and measures of continuity and stability. Those are easy enough to state, but those of you who watch energy policies around the world know that all of those are difficult to realize in practice. To address the security problem, one important step is to promote the effective functioning of global energy markets. Bilateral oil and gas arrangements are increasingly common, but inefficient. The existence of the OPEC oil cartel and the nascent global gas cartel are problematic in this regard. A second important step is to induce a favorable investment climate for production by promoting stability and effective use of revenues in producing nations. All of this implies a much greater and more productive engagement with the rest of the world than the U.S. has had in the recent past. Certainly there are responsible ways to increase U.S. conventional oil and gas production, but they can't be enough. So rather than the elusive energy independence, you might remember that in 1973, because of the OPEC oil embargo, Nixon set 1980 as the date by which the U.S. would achieve energy independence. We import 60% of the oil we use every day now. Instead of energy independence, energy security should be achieved through diversity of supply involving a mix of unconventional oils, coal, gas to liquids, and biofuels, as well as conventional crude. But even here, there's a need to align foreign policies with energy policy. I think you'll know the U.S. is serious about energy diversity when it drops its tariff on Brazilian ethanol. Or you'll know the U.K. is serious when it drops its import duty on Chinese high-efficiency light bulbs. For the climate problem, some of the steps are more concrete than those for security. We have to focus on the most cost-effective and material options for mitigating greenhouse gas emissions with a level playing field for all technologies, for example, not confusing the goal of emissions reduction with that of promoting renewable technologies. Government support for pre-competitive research in advanced solar, fusion, and biofuels is essential. And it's important to promote deployment of a technology at the appropriate moment. We have seen some outstanding examples where premature deployment of technologies leads to great expense but little impact. Assigning a serious cost to greenhouse gas emissions is an almost essential policy measure now being implemented spotily around the world, including, I think, here in California. Simple considerations show what the price needs to be in order to have an effect, at least in the developed world. We can make a part of the cost of electricity against the carbon price for various technologies. So the vertical axis here is how much it costs to produce a megawatt hour of electricity, and the horizontal axis is the price for emitting a ton of CO2. For zero carbon cost, which prevails in most of the world right now, the left-hand axis, coal is the cheapest, yet it rises most rapidly with carbon cost. Natural gas, slightly more expensive than coal at zero cost, but rising more slowly. And of course, nuclear hardly rising at all because it is emissions-free, but more expensive at zero cost. And the other technologies behave as shown. 
A takeaway from this graph is that the lines all cross somewhere between $20 and $40 per ton of CO2. So that a carbon cost of at least $20 per ton is required to induce serious decarbonization. And if the price is more than $40 a ton, the system is being stressed too hard. And so as you listen to the political discussion of the various bills on carbon price being discussed, know that anybody who doesn't get the carbon price up to at least $20 a ton isn't serious. Also interesting to put on this chart is the cost of solar electricity. That's flat because solar doesn't emit. On the other hand, it's at $250, roughly four to six times the cost of other technologies. Solar is a wonderful thing for off-grid applications, your boat, rural villages in India, and for peak shaving in warm regions in the afternoons when electricity is very expensive and you need the electricity. But in terms of having a material impact on carbon emissions, wide deployment of existing solar photovoltaics is not cost effective. If the carbon costs were $40 a ton, the cost of coal in the US, which fuels about half of the electrical power generation, would effectively be quadrupled. But the price of oil would increase by only 25%, because oil has more energy per carbon atom than coal does. At the consumer level, for $40 a ton, the price of petrol, or gasoline in the, this country, would go up by 35 cents a gallon, which is pretty small on the scale of fluctuations we've seen in the past few years. This indicates that power is by far the most cost-effective place to reduce carbon emissions, more so by about a factor of five than transport. It's therefore fortunate that far more carbon emissions come from power and that there are multiple material options there for emissions reductions. A carbon price can be affected either through a cap-and-trade system, as is already in effect in the EU and will soon be implemented in various states in the US, or through a carbon tax. There are many learned discussions about the relative merits of those two approaches. But either way, I think that two aspects will be important. The first is long-term stability. If a company like BP is going to invest an extra billion dollars in an emissions light power plant, it needs a reasonable notion of what those emissions reductions will be worth some 30 years hence. Note that that's 15 Congresses and seven presidential terms. The second is an appropriate and transparent use of the revenues from the carbon cost, including, for example, alleviating the impacts on the poorest. I am skeptical that the political system can pull all of that off. And of course, the carbon price must be universal to be effective. Otherwise, in our globalized world, carbon-intensive activities will simply shift to the zero-price regions. And that brings me to the nub of the emissions problem, in my view. The developed world has the resources to develop and deploy emissions-like technologies. As I've shown, these currently have a considerable cost premium relative to conventional alternatives. The developed world has started down an emissions reduction path, although there are uncertainties about how much will eventually be achieved. 
Yet the developing world has a host of more pressing problems facing it, including infrastructure, health, and education. So that emissions reduction necessarily has a lower priority. Unless emissions light technologies can be developed to the point where they have essentially no cost premium, we're going to have to face the question of who will pay the developing world not to emit. I've been asking that simple question to many people over the past few years and have yet to hear a convincing answer. Maybe some of you in the audience who know things about international trade or finance can be clever here. Let me then turn to the question posed in the title of this talk, can we have it all? My answer is that we could and we should effectively address the dual challenges of security and emissions, but I think we probably won't. And let me explain. The direct impact of energy security and its immediacy in time and place. Those of you who are old enough will remember the gas lines in the 1970s. Naturally make it a higher priority problem. Recall that security is largely about reliably and reasonably priced liquid fuels for transport. And to a lesser extent natural gas for power and heat. I believe that market forces, the diversity of carbon sources, mileage standards, and the gradual electrification of transport will all contribute, although there will be bumps along the way due to the inevitable supply-demand mismatches. These could be smoothed if governments took a long enough view to minimize disruptions, but sadly, we've been unable to do that in the US and in fact in most other nations. I'm much less sanguine about our ability to solve the emissions problem. As I've shown you, there are certainly policies that could be implemented and technologies that could be deployed to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations at 550 ppm or even lower. Businesses like BP are making initial steps at this and could do much more given the right policy framework. But many of the things the world could do don't get done. The alleviation of poverty is one example. In the emissions case, as I've discussed, there are formidable barriers involving scientific and technical realities, economics, politics, the way democracies work, and basic human nature. So I think one has to consider the possibility and maybe even the probability that the world's best efforts at conserving energy and decarbonizing the energy supply will not solve the emissions problem leading to the obvious question of what's plan B. This has been largely a muted topic for discussion in public for fear of distracting from the goal of mitigating emissions. Yet given the realities, I believe that it's irresponsible, particularly for academics, not to be studying this matter seriously. Adaptation, which is already going on in parallel with mitigation efforts, must be a major element of Plan B. The degree of adaptation, which might include shifts in agriculture, hardening of existing infrastructure, building dams, dikes, and aqueducts, and maybe even mass migrations. The degree to which that happens will, of course, depend upon the nature and severity of impacts, which are largely unknown. We have yet to see a taxonomy and quantification of the costs and benefits of adaptation measures analogous to the Princeton mitigation wedges. 
Despite this, I think that the proportionality of adaptation, as well as its immediacy in space and time, make it likely the dominant societal response. There are also reasons to believe that adaptation will be effective, given the extreme range of environments that humans already inhabit. However, it will be much more difficult in the developing world, and particularly in those regions that are close to subsistence levels. And should the worst of the possible climate changes come to pass, geoengineering could emerge as part of Plan B. We humans are already intervening inadvertently in the climate system through greenhouse gas emissions. There are other more intentional interventions that one can imagine. Sucking carbon dioxide of the atmosphere through biosphere interventions, or decreasing by a small amount the sunlight absorbed by the Earth. Apart from the technical issues, geoengineering has difficult social dimensions, including questions like who gets to decide? What are the trigger points? Or what's the liability for unintended consequences? It is a route that, in the future, the world might reluctantly consider as a last-inch response to catastrophic climate change. I'd like to spend the last minute or so by just trying to draw some conclusions from the lessons in this energy discussion that might be applicable to other aspects of the world's condition. This afternoon, I think I've shown you that a straightforward accounting of the facts, trends, and technology leads to some very powerful conclusions and a more or less obvious set of actions to respond to the challenges that energy poses. Sadly, to my mind, as I've been presenting these thoughts for the past several years, I found that they have been perhaps all too well received by general audiences and many decision makers, even though that they are largely known to the experts. In short, I'm amazed that the world can be and indeed continues to be so confused about energy matters. So we need education. We need education of policymakers to foster wise decisions. We need education of the public so that they'll allow or at least tolerate the decisions that have to be made. And we need education in the universities of people who will work on these problems. Technologists who are fluent in policy and vice versa are particularly important. And now let me generalize. In the next several decades, the world will increasingly face, and indeed is already facing, a number of serious and unprecedented problems. Beyond energy and climate change, these include environmental degradation, food and water availability, the finiteness of resources such as metals and woods, land use, public health, and emerging diseases. These problems are driven in varying proportions by demographics, the economic rise of most of humanity, globalization, the finiteness and maldistribution of resources, and the advance of technology itself. And they're distinguished by having technical issues, science and engineering, as well as social aspects, economics, political science, cultural aspects. Many are therefore systems issues, and all are global with long timescales. Understanding how to manage these problems, providing clear analyses and response options, and communicating them credibly and persuasively 
to decision makers and the general public is maybe the defining challenge for the next decade in my mind. It requires fusing the technical disciplines and the social sciences in unnatural ways. CSAC and other organizations that have been tackling arms control problems are models for doing this. But the new problems that we're facing are even more complex. To find solutions, and I am optimistic that they do exist, we've got to focus the world's prodigious problem-solving ability on these issues. But that's a subject for a whole other discussion, and I expect that I've already given you enough to think about, so it's probably best that I stop here. Thanks for your attention. I should mention that for a more complete discussion, you can find a streaming video up at that uh, URL that's listed there, if you're interested. Steve, thank you very much for a most interesting and informative discussion. Uh, I would like to now open uh, the forum for your questions. Uh, and uh, to make sure that we all uh, hear your questions, we'd like you to come up to one of the microphones. Uh, we have four of them here. And so I invite you to the microphone. Uh, please state your name, your affiliation, and address your question to Dr. Kunin. Uh, please use the microphone. My name is Shishir Mukherjee. Uh, I'm retired now. Utilities. I have been working on energy and environment problems since 1968 or 69. And suddenly, you know, a few weeks ago, I saw the announcement uh, by Tata. Incidentally, I have worked with the, the, that company in, in, in the early 60s. So I know they're capable of producing a, a, a small car costing less than $3,000. I think much of your analysis, you know, would substantiate that we might expect this kind of issues coming up, or this kind of the working of the market forces. I, I personally think that we are focusing on, on energy, which is not a requirement for human life, just like food and water and other things are. It is, uh, however, makes this possible. So what we need is not focus on energy technologies, but on the basic issues of why we use energy and how much energy we use. These are all dependent on our inborn cultural and economic you know, habit formation. Right. 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 
So I think the attack has to be much deeper. Like, uh, I would say that to make the public transportation system more, you know, and also to take an active role in reducing the greenhouse gas. Incidentally, I worked about 10 years ago on a, on a study of 20 Asian countries, you know, supported by UN, and, and that is what conclusion I came to. Right. You, you know, I mean, the issue of cultural aspirations is a very difficult one. Uh, and uh, for those of us in the developed world to tell the developing world what it should or should not be aspiring to, particularly in an age in which the world is a small place, is a very difficult thing to be doing. No, my very focus difficult. was not so much on so the I, developing I countries. Like but, sorry. Yeah, let me turn, uh, Dave. <clears throat> Dr. Coonan, uh, I'm Dave Montague, uh, affiliate here at CSAC. Uh, you mentioned that you felt the technological barriers to the upper right quadrant for nuclear and uh, biofuels were not the drivers. Uh, I take that to mean that you think that fast spectrum gas cooled reactors, uh, the technology is in hand, at least within some reasonable time limit. Uh, but you talked also about cellulosic uh, biofuels as uh, the real answer for biofuels to be effective. Could you expand on that a little bit? I, I, I've, in the studies that I've been involved in, uh, uh, the materials problem for the high temperature fast spectrum reactors uh, to solve the waste problem uh, have to be solved, and I don't know where that stands. Uh, and, and the feedstock that we can grow seems to, to me to offer a, a, a large opportunity for savings in uh, petrochemicals, uh, you just using the agricultural uh, biofuels, you know, without going cellulosic, which seemed to me to be further out in time by a long so, so let, let me start with the biofuels first. Um, uh, you know, it's all about where you get your carbon from. I like to count carbon atoms. And uh, if you just restrict yourself to the U.S. for the moment, there is no agricultural crop except for corn that could have a material impact on how much carbon we're using already for transportation. Material, I mean, let's say 15%. Unless you essentially used almost the whole corn crop to make ethanol. And even at that level, you get only about 15% of transport. We simply don't grow enough food. There, you know, there are people who want to run their diesel engines on kitchen grease, right? And you can look at how much kitchen grease there is in the US, and the answer is there's nothing compared to what we use in diesel. Sorry, I don't have that chart to show you, but I do have a chart like that. If you want material amounts of carbon from biological sources, it has to be 
some combination of better forestry activities, dedicated energy crops, and an efficient use of agricultural waste. With that, we have more than enough carbon in the form of lignocellulose to be able to power transport at, let's say, the 30% level sustainably. Now, there are technical issues associated with decomposing the lignocellulose into C5 and C6 sugars, and then turning those C5s and C6s into interesting fuel molecules, of which ethanol is the least. Biobutanol, in which we're trying to do something with DuPont, is better, but you can do even better than that. I came away this weekend on Saturday and Sunday from the first meeting of the Energy Biosciences Institute. So we had some number of Berkeley and Illinois faculty and BP folks starting to talk about the research path that they're going to follow to try to do biofuels right. And I can tell you that it was, you know, there were times when I felt I had awesome glimpses of the future of what's possible, enabled in part by the biology and enabled in part by the chemistry and economic analyses that people just haven't done before. In terms of the reactors, I did not mean to imply that the world should be deploying rapidly gas-cooled reactors. I mean, some of them have been demonstrated on small scale. South Africa, I believe, is about to try to deploy one at the 400 megawatt scale by 2012 or so. Um, I think the current set of reactor technologies that are demonstrated are not bad. Right? And that's what we should be deploying over the next decade or so as the other technologies get developed. Thank you. Dean? Dean Wilkening, CSAC. Uh, Dr. Coonan, behind all the charts on energy growth was an assumption that population is going to grow substantially. And yet, in the solution set, there was no discussion of possible constraints on population growth. Is that, in fact, it's behind a lot of the global problems you mentioned right at the end of your talk. Is that because curtailing population growth is in the too hard category? Or do you have some thoughts about uh, how one could wrestle with that problem? So I'm, I'm not a demographer. Um, how do I get this uh, full screen? Uh, I'm not a demographer. But what I understand is that obviously over the next, the near decades, the population is pretty well locked in, birth rates being what they are and so on. Uh, and again, just to repeat, we're at six and a half now. And contrary to projections of a couple decades ago, we will peak out at about nine, nine and a half billion people by the middle of the century. That's expected. So the population will go up by 50%. The energy use will go up by more than that. This chart is population independent. It is per capita. And you know, as India and China and Malaysia all get richer, they're going to use uh, more energy anyway. I haven't tried to break down in my own mind uh, whether it's population or it's economics. I think a large part of it is economics um, and a smaller fraction population. But you know, my, I would guess sort of 60% uh, economics and 40% population or the other way around. But you can't do much about the population the emission, trajectory the right now. growth, 60% is the economics you're saying? I, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm just giving you a guess, sort of gut. Maybe it's 70-30 or something like that. Right? Thank you. Uh, Steve, let me inject uh, a quick question because I was wondering, uh, uh, when you showed that graph, you, you mentioned the outliers and particularly yeah. on the low side, yeah. uh, France and Brazil, of course, we the U.S. are on the high side, but the one that really stands out is Russia. 
Steve, they just have a comment about why is Russia yes. um, where it is. So, so uh, you know, I used to say that that's retrograde motion, as you can see. Uh, and what happened, you know, the, the Russian data, as you can see from the footnote in the bottom, is 1992 to 2004 only. Uh, and what happened was, of course, the Russian GDP went down during the 1990s, and its energy use went down. And then as it started to come back up, its energy use is going back up. And so you have that funny hook shape. My favorite on the chart is Ireland. Look at the way Ireland has zoomed up. I should say, by the way, if you look at this chart, if you look at the carbon chart, uh, rather than the energy chart. Let me just put that one up. Um, that these emissions are the ones that are attributed directly to each country, fossil fuel use. But as we in the developed world offshore more of our industrial activity to China and India, you have to count some imputed emissions in the products that we import from them. I've seen a first estimate of that for the UK, and what it shows, much to the UK's dismay, is that rather than going down slightly, it goes up by 10%. So a, a good accounting of who's emitting and for what reasons is yet to be done, but of course in addressing the problem globally, it hardly matters since the CO2 is well mixed in the atmosphere. This is a global problem requiring a global solution. Thank you. Karen Law, I'm from Sandia National Labs. Um, Dr. Kunin, you mentioned earlier in one of your slides that you know, the estimate for liquid fuels is about 25 or 40 years. Now, by my count, I'm going to be entering middle age at that time. So can you comment on the, uh, the dangers of scientists and engineers like ourselves making comments like, we won't run out anytime soon, when soon is fairly relative? Well, it depends on what you mean by soon. Um, I, I don't think we're going to run out of liquid hydrocarbons anytime soon. So the oil has got 40 years plus another 40, let's say, okay? The coal is maybe, well, you know, proven reserves at 150 years and maybe up to 1,000 years of coal. There are processes developed by the Germans in the 1920s, Fischer and Tropps, for example, and practiced by the Germans during the Second World War and practiced today by South Africa that turned coal into perfectly good vehicle fuel. They are economic at $60 a barrel, but require enormous capital investment and currently without sequestration entail enormous emissions. So if the world really wanted to continue to power vehicles with liquid hydrocarbons 100 years hence, it probably is going to be turning coal into liquids or going after very heavy oils that need to be dug out of the ground and, and so on. So in that sense, I don't think we're running out anytime soon. We will run out on a 100-year timescale, perhaps, of oil that flows easily out of the ground. I should mention, by the way, enhanced oil recovery. That's probably a technology I didn't put in the talk. You'll see it on the DVD if you watch the, the video. Um, right now, on average, the world gets out of the ground only 35% of the oil that it knows to be in the reservoirs. The balance, 65%, gets stuck. It gets stuck in the pores of the rock and will not flow out. The simplest technology to get the extra oil out is to pump water down there and extract the water along with some oil. There are other technologies that are a mix of fluid mechanics, uh, chemistry, and geology that one can imagine and be working on. 
Every 1% increase in recovery from 35% is worth the whole North Sea in terms of oil production. So improving oil recovery technologies is very important also, particularly as it becomes more difficult to access most of the world's resources. If I could ask the folks who work the lights to bring the lights back yeah, up in the yeah, audience, yeah. we would like to see who we're see. looking at. Yeah, Let me turn next to Steve. Steve Schneider from uh, the Woods Institute in Biology here yep. at Stanford. But the hat that I want to wear is as the uh, coordinating lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's chapter on key vulnerability and risks of climate change. On, on sorry? Uh, key vulnerabilities and yep, risks yep. of climate change. Because an absolute, uh, and I, what I really want to address is your plan B, plan A dichotomy, because what I will argue is, in fact, you got to go in reverse, and you can't do one without the other. We already have in the pipeline a substantial commitment to climate change that absolutely requires adaptation with or without mitigation, particularly for poor people in hot countries and those in Hurricane Alley and so forth, the usual, the usual yeah. array. Right. The second thing that the literature is very clear on, uh, remember your little box that you showed, the 20 to $40, and we have exactly the same kind of analogy looking at impacts and looking at adaptation. And it, there are four chapters in Working Group 2 that, that do this. And uh, they all basically say somewhere between one and three degrees, you start running out of the capacity to adapt. Therefore, adaptation has to be front and center at the beginning because it's an equity problem. The second thing is if you don't mitigate in the long term, adaptation won't work. So therefore, you can't just have a single strategy. And just coming back to that, I would argue that as long as that's up on the board, and I know you didn't say this, but momentum of curves is not predetermination. Mm -hmm. And that we can't just say, well, because it's been hard, it won't be, because otherwise, if we get past the adaptation effectiveness, we're really going to be in very serious problem. We're going to have to get past predetermination thinking in order to get that done. I don't disagree at all how hard that's going to be. Uh, on the other hand, we have to keep repeating what the consequences are of not doing it. Thanks. Good. Thanks. It's good. You want to say anything about geoengineering? I'd having, be interested in what you written, have to say. Having you know, published in Climatic Change, the first paper with that title, and, and having written on it many times, uh, most of my deep environmental friends are very angry at me for having written on this. How could you possibly you know, do that? Because it'll encourage people to have uh, planetary methadone as an escape for our carbon <laughs> heroin addiction. And there's some truth in that. On the other hand, if we're looking at driving to extinction more than 40% of the world's species and we just simply can't do plan A or even plan B, we may be stuck. So I can't you know, rule out as an intellectual and worrying about impacts, studying what might provide other alternatives. To me, the biggest Achilles heel of geoengineering is not as technical capability, but whether I'd want a small cadre of climate controllers working for 300 years Remember, dust in the stratosphere lasts four years, right. CO2 right. anomalies last hundreds. So therefore, can you imagine if in 1900, uh, we somehow were where we are now, we knew this was coming, and we appointed this group of people to control it, would we have gotten through the Depression and two world wars without having it fail? So my view is, let's not get in that box. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I would agree Thanks. we can avoid it. Lynn? Uh, I'm Lynn Enid from CSAC. Thank you for a really stunning talk. Uh, one way that this kind of talk can have an impact is that uh, every undergraduate here can say now, 
what should I be studying? What should I do? I've got the rest of my life. I can think about how to, how to try to do something about this. Um, um, I'm losing my, my question. I'll get it in one sec. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, what, but in your position and the kind of people that you uh, obviously talk to, you also can have an impact on uh, on, on on the industry and uh, and politically. So, is there uh, an industry group that is talking currently to presidential candidates? I haven't heard a peep about the environment actually from anyone. Uh, now, I, I expect that from our current administration, but is, is, there a, is there some kind of organized professional group that's actually trying to have some kind of organized uh, nonpartisan uh, impact on policy advisors, on, camp, on oh, campaigns I, at this point? You know, I mean, there are the, the, you know, AAAS has moved into technology and policy issues. I, you know, I'm, I spend most of my time in the UK, so I'm a little bit decoupled from what's going on. Uh, here, but uh, look, these are difficult issues, and the political campaigns have a very tough time talking about these issues for the obvious reasons. I think once the campaigns settle down a little bit, maybe even tomorrow, uh, you can start to have a more productive discussion with uh, candidates, but maybe not even till the general election is over. I, you know, you can't, it's really hard to confront these things and, and have to make decisions. So, I understand. Yeah. I understand what that it's hard for any uh, campaign to do that publicly. Yeah. I guess yeah. I'm just asking: Is there something organized? I, I mean, you're part of a really huge company and industry. It seems to me, if you want to have an impact on the political system, you have a better shot at it than than I do going out to vote tomorrow. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I'm out and about talking about this stuff a lot to lots of different audiences. That's all I can say. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Hi, my name is Brandon Heller, and I'm a grad student here at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And raise this a little bit. Um, my question is: With Super Tuesday coming up tomorrow, can you talk about the presidential policies or the, the policies of the presidential candidates? And if that's kind of an area you don't want to tread, which I understand, maybe you can talk about the measures uh, of policy most likely to be implemented, the ones you think have the best shot, the one that we as the public can push the hardest for. Um. So I, I can't talk about any of the candidates. I, I, that would just be inappropriate for me to do that. Um, I have opinions, of course. Um, um, as to what measures are likely to be implemented, you know, one of the things I have learned as a scientist over some number of decades is to talk about things you know about and avoid talking about things you don't know about. And uh, I think the question of what measures are likely to be implemented is not something I know very much about. I can tell you what needs to be implemented to have an effect, and I've tried to do that, but whether it's likely or not, you know, I, I wouldn't dare touch that. My name is Anders Nielsen from the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and um, <clears throat> I'm conducting fundamental research using x-rays on energy and, and water and so on. So one of the things I like to bring to the table here is actually about water, because I think if if we look forward into the future, we're going to have another crisis coming on, which is already here now, which is actually the water crisis. And we might be able to replace fossil fuels with different things, but we cannot replace water. So 
today, one billion people is without access to clean water. So one thing we have to think about when we actually both considering different policies and also future technologies is how they're going to connect with this water crisis. Yeah. And uh, it's one, one of my own concern in a way with respect to the biofuels is that by the time we might have developed the biofuels, we need all the land for, for food production. And we actually today even are taking out the resources of water in our aquifer that have been stored for a long time. Yeah. And that is not coming back. So we have to think about this problem connected together with the energy crisis. So right. I'd like to hear your, your yeah. comments on this. So the, the food fuel competition is certainly something we want to avoid. Uh, in our Energy Biosciences Institute, a good fraction of the activity, 20% or something, is concerned with the socioeconomic and environmental impact issues. So we're, we're worrying about that at the beginning. I want to do biofuels sustainably. I don't want them to be like an oil reservoir which decays on a 10 or 20 year time scale. Right. That said, uh, there is first the issue of water. The crops we are looking at, miscanthus in particular, we hope to grow without artificial irrigation. So they will grow uh, with natural rainfall, and that says certain parts of the country are uh, better than others. Um, plants can be engineered to tolerate brackish water. There are already plants, brack mangrove I learned this weekend is one of them, that does a pretty good job of growing in salty water. Um, there was a thought and I, I missed it. Oh, land availability. Okay. If you take 10 tons an acre, actually 13 tons an acre, and 100 gallons a ton of biomass, which are the numbers that the EBI, the Chris Somerville, Steve Long, think we can get to plausibly as an average, then you need 9% of the land harvested in the U.S. last year to provide 20% of the transportation fuel. Now, agricultural technology improves. I don't know if you've ever seen a pot of corn yields as a function of time. It goes up really fast due to technology. GPS to guide the tractors and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think the land is there, even if you wanted to just do it in the U.S. Another physicist-style number. One-third of one percent of the arable land on the planet at the yields I'm talking about will provide one percent of the transportation fuel currently. So I'm not too concerned about land use, but like all these things, we're going to have to see. Hey there, my name is Nick Benavidez. I'm an undergraduate here, and I'd like to thank you for a very enlightening talk, Dr. Good. Kunin. Good. Now, browsing through the New York Times and other news sources, it appears that thanks to rising oil prices, BP has been enjoying record uh, revenue and profit levels of the past several quarters. And I was just curious if you could comment, in general perhaps, about the strategy for the investment of that so-called windfall profits as to what amount of those might be invested in the development of alternative energy sources, right. and if you come on the strategy for which ones you would be focusing on. Yeah. Um, if you watch the video, I mean, the video really focuses on a technology analysis with the trends I talked about as a background. But that said, let me just talk a little bit about what BP does with its profits. Um, most of it gets returned to the shareholders, right? people own the company. It gets returned as dividends, it gets returned as share buybacks. Um, you know, uh, BP is, I think, the largest holding in the UK pension system. I'm not sure. We do spend about $20 billion a year on capital projects. 
Most of that is in oil and gas. Mature technologies, it's what we do as a business. But some of it is invested in alternative energy. We are trying to pursue three or four decarbonized fuel projects, hydrogen power. The scale is a billion to two billion each around the world. One here in California, one in Australia, one just announced in Abu Dhabi. We are investing heavily in wind. We're about to become one of the largest wind operators in the U.S. We have a growing solar business. I think we're third largest manufacturer in the world of solar cells, which as I pointed out, not for climate reasons, but for other reasons. And we're making this big push in biofuels. The research expenditures are going up much faster than the federal government's research expenditures are going up. Yeah, we have time for one last quick question. Oh, wonderful. I'm Emily Meyerding. I'm from the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. and I'd like to thank you, Dr. Coonan, for a very interesting and thorough talk. Good. Um, I'm wondering, the projections about GDP per capita and energy use per, per capita seem to presume that nations, um, the structure of their economies will remain consistent over time. Yeah. And we hear so much discussion about changes to services-based economies. I'm wondering if, and I'd heard statistics about countries' GDPs starting to delink from energy consumption, yeah, yeah. although your figures don't really reflect that. So I'm wondering if that, overall your talk is very pessimistic about demand-side solutions to um, energy supply problems. And do you think that, as you were saying with the refrigerator example, that any um, increases in efficiency are just going to be taken up by increases in consumption, or is it possible that as national economies change, this issue yeah. could change as well? Yeah. So several, several points, I guess. Um, one is that the whole world can't be a service economy, right? Okay. Somebody's got to make something somewhere, right? Um, the, the U.S. energy consumption, I would argue, is pretty well decoupled from economic growth, right? And you could almost argue the same is true for the U.K. Uh, but what catches my eye is that, if I'm an astronomer, I call it the main sequence on the HR diagram, right? Uh, you know, that universal trajectory of all those countries going up in the lower left-hand corner. I'll tell you a story. I was in China about two and a half years ago talking to a body called the NDRC, which is kind of the central planning operation. And at that time, they said, you know, we're going to do it in China. We are going to quadruple our economy and only double our energy use. And I hauled out this chart, and I showed them where on this chart it would put them. Right? When it's in that white space in the middle there at the bottom. And I said, that's wonderful. We in BP would like to help you do that. How are you going to do it? And the room got very quiet. So, you know, I look at the data. I'm just a physicist kind of guy. It looks to me like that's all going in the same direction. Now, you can argue societies can develop differently, but no one has given me an example of how that's going to happen. I think there's a certain amount of concrete you need, buildings, roads, uh, all that sort of stuff that more or less sets the scope of that line. But I've been trying to work it out, either in order of magnitude, but I can't do it yet. Ladies and gentlemen, before we thank our speaker again, let me just uh, make another couple of thank yous. Uh, first of all, thank you again uh, to Professor Sid Drell, for whom this uh, lecture is named and who's been the providing and the guiding light for us uh, to marry the social and the and, uh, sciences and the sciences to look at these important uh, international problems. Uh, thank you again to Bud and Cicely Whelan for endowing uh, this lectureship. 
And then thank you to all of you uh, uh, for coming here to a CSAC-sponsored event. Uh, we hope that you'll take in more CSAC events. Thank you for coming and for enriching the discussion. And so let me uh, have you join me in thanking one more time our speaker tonight for an informative and interesting discussion. Thank you. Good. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.